Welcome to the Bear Market Brief. I'm your host, Aaron. We're now nearly at the one-year anniversary of the Ukraine war, and as such, I wanted to devote some coverage to it. Less on the tactics and strategy, there's some great coverage out there, including from FPRI, but more on the bigger picture and personal narrative. What is this like for the people involved? I'm hoping to devote a couple of episodes to this, but up first is Maria Romanenko, who was a journalist in Ukraine, at least until the war. She'll tell you a little bit more about what she's doing now. We spoke about her personal experience with the war, but also looking back after a year, the bigger picture. How does she think about the war? What does it make her feel? This is, of course, just one story, but it's nonetheless an important one to tell. At the request of Maria, proceeds from today's episode will be donated to Boris Dedov, an artist putting together a museum in Chernihiv about atrocities that occurred there during Russian occupation. I'm including in the description a Twitter thread that Maria wrote explaining the project in a little bit better detail, and I also asked her a question about it at the end of the episode. In any case, I hope you consider donating. That said, let's dive in. Maria, thank you for joining today. Thank you for having me, Aaron. So let's start with a basic introduction. Uh, what are you doing now and what were you doing before the war? So I'm a, I've been a journalist um, since 2016. I uh, worked as a journalist in Ukraine. Um, I was the uh, since 2017, 2018, I've been working for Hermitsky International for a couple of years, being the chief editor. And that's like... A, at the time, it was the largest multimedia um, English language uh, media outlet in Ukraine. And um, I, as for now, on a day to day, I kind of all I do is uh, help Ukrainians in Greater Manchester area where I am now, uh, whether that is through translation or giving free walking tours of Manchester for um, new arrivals. And I have done that for over 400 Ukrainians now. But uh, at the moment, uh, my partner and I, we fled, well, we fled together um, last year because he's British and he, he wanted uh, to get back to the UK. So Jez and I, uh, we are now in the process of this four-stage plan uh, for the return. And the first one is we're both writing a book um, called Escape from Ukraine. And it basically tells the story of how we got out because the story for us, in our case, because it was uh, in the very first days um, that involved many, many hours of queuing at the border and seeing some horrific scenes of death and um, people um, fainting and people feeling sick. And all in all, you know, the, our journey from, from Ukraine to the UK took seven days and that included a lot of uh, fighting bureaucracy, specifically in the UK. Um, so we're doing doing the, the book about that. And the second stage is we're uh, setting up a CIC or community interest company called Talks for Ukraine, where we tell the story of the above and show a lot of photographs that, were, you know, that we took along the way. And this will be rolled out to schools, community groups, businesses, bands, festivals over the next few months. And the third one is a documentary that we're working on, and it's called Return to Ukraine. So this will be when Ukraine is free, when Ukraine wins. Um, we will uh, make a documentary uh, of our return, but that won't really be about us. It'll be more about uh, reunions and well, me reunited with my friends, my family, but also talking to um, people who have decided to stay, who you know who stayed all this time, and people who decided to leave, asking them why they did it, 
and also talking to politicians and like notable people asking about what Ukraine needs now for the restoration, which will, we know will take a long time. And the final stage is invest in Ukraine, and that will be a company that will help British businesses um, invest in Ukraine again after victory and support them in this process. So this is what I've been doing here since arriving in Manchester uh, last year. That sounds like a busy, uh, busy schedule and a very ambitious plan. So I wish you the best of luck with that. Uh, you mentioned your journey out of Ukraine at the beginning of the war. So uh, why don't we talk about that a little bit? Uh, let's start on day one. Uh, where were you on February 24th when the, uh, the news came? Uh, was Russia's invasion something you were expecting? Had you been talking about it? Had you made plans for it? Well, I think like most Ukrainians, you know, I thought that maybe something would happen, but I didn't imagine it at the scale that it happened. Um, I don't think anybody did, you know, including the president. It was definitely something that none of us uh, anticipated. So I watched um, just before I was in Poland, but on the 20, since the 23rd of February, I was back in Ukraine. So on the 21st of February, I watched um, Putin's crazy speech and where he basically, you know, recognized the independence of the Donetsk and Luhansk regions in Ukraine. And I sort of laughed at it. It was a bit crazy, but scary because, you know, you don't want a nuclear state to um, say that the leader of a nuclear state to come up with this uh, claims that Ukraine is not a real country and it was invented by Lenin and um, all of the stuff that he said on the 21st of February. But I watched it and I was like, well, you know, it's, it's just a madman and uh, he'll probably be happy with, you know, that he did this thing now and then he might do something in the future. But I definitely didn't expect it to all happen at once the way everything did. So that's why on February 23rd, I flew back to Ukraine um, after spending a week in Poland. Uh, the, the main reason for going to Poland was to just meet up with my boyfriend because he wouldn't come to Ukraine uh, because of the advice of the UK government um, to, uh, you know, they advised against going to Ukraine and basically any <laughs> trips to Ukraine, they said um, that they advised against it. So uh, I decided to fly back. And that, again, was my sort of feeling that, you know, even if something happens, I'm in my own country. Um, and uh, I didn't anticipate things to happen the way they did. But uh, on the 24th of February, we woke up in the Kiev region uh, with uh, staying with my dad, and um, my partner woke me up uh, saying that there's bombs being dropped everywhere, and I initially just couldn't really struggle to understand what was going on. It was uh, hard to believe it. And then he was like, well, I'm getting out of the country, um, regardless of what you decide to do. But like, if you're planning to come with me, you need to act really quickly because I'm going like now. So um, I had this very, very serious dilemma of uh, whether I follow him um, and potentially say say goodbye to my family potentially forever. You know, I wouldn't know if I left when I would see them again and whether um, whether I'd be able to see them. You know, you never really know what happens if Putin's plan was to take over Ukraine uh, in three days. And as much as everybody says that. Um, it's not possible and it sounds crazy in the first couple of days things developed so fast and I think nobody really knew what was going to happen the first couple of days definitely were, were really really scary for uh, most Ukrainians so if Putin had his thing um, you know none of us knew whether we would see each other again so 
uh, or whether to stay in Ukraine and then not to see my partner again, potentially, because again, I wouldn't know where, if there would be any transport means to go outside of Ukraine if I stayed. Um, so um, I just decided to, to, to go with him at least to Lviv, which is where he was going. My dad drove us. Uh, the journey took us 10, 10 hours and we just saw lots of like cars, uh, you know, go heading towards uh, Lviv, but in the other direction towards uh, eastwards, uh, Ukrainian tanks and either other military vehicles. It was kind of like seeing the Independence Day parade, um, but realizing that it's all real and, you know, those tanks are not just there to show off, but they actually, um, they actually go into a real war. Um, so we, we got to Lviv, uh, that was already the, the night of 24th, and uh, we stayed there for a couple of hours, uh, and our friend, well, my partner's friend, agreed to, to put us up and also to drive us to the border the next day, and we actually got going at 4am, but before that we heard a fighter jet in the sky, and uh, we all got run down to a bomb, bomb shelter and stayed there for uh, for some time until like I decided to get up a little bit you know like go uh, take go upstairs and uh, get some signal and I actually saw that the, the plane was showing up on flight radar for some reason and it was a Ukrainian uh, like a friendly plane so after that we we left at 4 a.m and um, went to the border the the journey to the border was supposed to take us normally it takes one hour 15 minutes and uh, Google Maps was telling us that it'd be one hour and 40 minutes. And we were like, well, that's fine. We'll be there before breakfast, cross the border by lunchtime. And, you know, it's uh, all going to be easy and nice. Uh, but then 19 kilometers before the actual border, the traffic just stood still. Um, no cars were moving at all. It was initially like a single lane road, but it turned into two lanes and then three lanes and then four lanes by people just using the the side roads and the, the dirt tracks and things like that. So it just was like a weird thing to see. You just stuck there and then daylight came, the, the, the sun, you know, the sunrise came and we just saw like lots of women abandoning, abandoning the cars where their husbands were taking the buggy, taking the child and taking whatever they could put in plastic bags uh, to carry to the border and walk for 19 kilometers uh, to the border with their children and uh, their bags and it was a very strange thing to see you know it's a it's definitely something you you, you never forget uh, but also on the way to the border I was giving out lots of interviews because as I was probably you know one of the most um, one of the first um, people to to cross the border and definitely one of the first people who spoke English well and you know had a bit of a profile that journalists actually had access to so that's why I ended up like on the 10 hour journey to Lviv. I did like eight hours of straight back to back interviews and uh, I talked to pretty much every single BBC platform and um, everywhere else, especially in the UK, The Guardian, ITV. Where I, I just did that so many interviews. That was that was crazy. In that and, moment, um, how, how would you describe how you were feeling? Were you scared or stressed? I can certainly imagine what was going through your head at that, at that moment. Um, I think maybe because uh, I was doing all the interviews, um, I didn't really have time to catch up with my feelings. I was just repeating the same thing to everybody and like saying that this is what I'm doing, this is what I'm seeing. Um, 
you know, it's horrible what's going on. I, d- I didn't expect it. But it's kind of like every interview was pretty much the same thing. And, you know, if you asked me now, or if I had to watch all of those interviews now, I'd probably, I did so many of them probably just on autopilot. And uh, it was like repeating the same things. Um, so I think doing all those interviews kind of took my mind off what was happening, and uh, which probably was good for that time. But that also meant that I had a very delayed full full scale realization of what happened that only happened like seven eight days later in the UK when we were getting a dinner and uh, that was the first time we like sat down and uh, my partner showed to me a video of Borodyanka in the Kiev region and it was like fully destroyed and I just broke down in tears and it hit me really hard so I think the first eight days because we were we were doing so many things we were constantly on the move and we were doing lots of interviews and talking a lot about what uh, about what we went through that I um, couldn't really fully understand um, what we did and how lucky we were to despite all the horror that we faced and despite being 24 23 hours uh, spending on food uh, without toilet access without access to any food or water uh, just nearly crushed to death where there was we saw some horrific scenes as I, as I said um we um despite all of that um i think we were really really despite what we saw i think we were really really lucky to to be able to cross the border uh, practically you know un- unharmed other than uh getting like back pain and leg pain from all the standing um in one piece and uh with all our belongings, we saw many people losing their bags, and my partner nearly lost our suitcase because in that in that crash, you just you know if you if you let go of something, there's pretty much no chance of you finding it again because it's all there's such a big crowd that you can't like walk around just wherever you squeezed into wherever you know that's where you stay in. Um, so um yeah we were you know it was a crazy crazy journey out uh, and there's so much that happened we also met a lot of uh, we talked to some very interesting and nice people uh we we saw different things happen and it's not just our story but it's the stories of other people who were leaving there was a woman with a french bulldog uh who uh just couldn't she was carrying her her dog but she also had a suitcase and she had to choose between her dog and the suitcase because she just couldn't to, do it with both so she let go of her suitcase, carry on her dog. And, um, you know, there's stories like that that we saw. And there's also what we saw on the other side when we finally crossed um, 40, hour later, 40 hours later, since, you know, since starting uh, in the Kiev region, we, f- we finally were crossed into Poland and we were welcomed by um, an army of volunteers who everybody was just trying to help and do something. And that was the first time we saw like food uh, the first time, you know, in, in 40 hours. And that was the first time I saw toilet facilities and um, and I was given this like coffee and it was like instant coffee, you know, the, the cheapest kind of coffee that you can get, but it tasted uh, divine. And then we sat down and there were people like offering um, to drive you anywhere to different cities, uh, offering to put you up in different cities and uh two Ukrainian guys who have been living in Poland for some time, they drove us to Krakow and we sat down in the car and it was again, you know, there was nothing special about that car, but as soon as we sat down in the car, we were like, oh my God, this is like so comfortable. Um, So you just become so grateful for everything you see. And, uh, you know, there's so many aspects of our escapes that that's why we decided to, 
to do a book about this uh, because as, as many interviews as we did uh, throughout this time, you normally just squeeze it into a three minute like TV segment and uh, the questions would be pretty much the same and you don't get to tell the, all those uh, interesting stories uh, of what we saw. So one of the things I've heard about during the war, both in another interview I did for this podcast, but in general, uh, are stories of solidarity between Ukrainians and looking out for each other. Is that something you experienced in the rush to get out of the country at all? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot of help in each other. I mean, uh, um I had so um, as well as it being like physically and more morally difficult, uh, the 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 border journey. I also started my period at the same time, which meant that I just was feeling very very sick. And at one point, I thought that if I don't get out of the crash, I'll, I'll just die. So I had to like push through and push forward and to get out to the next bit, which was so the first bit was basically like this. Um, like we refer to it as death pit now because it was just like a fenced area that was probably made for 50 people tops but there were like um, thousands of people all just got trying to get through and once you get through the the this uh fenced uh this cage area which i think is only just to filter people through because there's two single person gates in there and you they let out people at the rate of like one minute one person a minute so that's why there was such a crush because they only let up one person and they wait some time and then another one. And once you get through that, uh, you're in another queue and that queue is now for the Polish side of the border. And then the next stage is, sorry, the Ukrainian side of the border. And then the next stage is the Polish side of, of the border, uh, which was super quick. It was basically the first two stages that were uh, taking so much time. So in the in the first area, as I, as I said, I was just uh, I was feeling so sick, and at first I tried to fight it, and um, I I had some paracetamol, but I didn't have any water, or at least I couldn't get any water because you just couldn't move. And a lady passed on her water bottle to me so that I could take some water, and then I. Um, there were lots of mothers with children and um, they were really, really, understandably, they were really, really worried about their children being crushed to death. And also there were things uh, like, you know, not being able to give food or not even having enough food because nobody planned for this to be like a 20 plus hour um, thing. And uh, a lot of them like tried to ask to for, the, for them to be let out first and to be given priority. And uh, when I when I said that I was like feeling that if I if I stay here for any longer that I would possibly not be alive, I joined a group of women that were pushing through, and I saw that there were like kind of looks at me that you know that because everybody was just trying to make sure that everything is fair, you know that. Um, so I anticipated people would be looking at me like, "Why are you going? You clearly haven't got a child in your arm." But then as soon as people saw like that, I was looking very pale and that I was really just not had much life in me left if I was staying there they they all kind of understood and everybody was um, kind and then as we got to the next stage there were people setting up this makeshift toilets for children so that at least children could go to the toilets we couldn't especially women couldn't go so it's easy if you're a man you can just go and turn your back to everybody and uh, do the thing but you know if you're a woman you literally 23 hours you, you you can't use the toilet at all because there were no toilets um, so at least for children, they were setting up makeshift toilets and there's somebody was doing some sort of yoga thing, I think, so that people could stretch a little bit. And um, and there was this also incredible thing that um, every couple of hours there were somebody coming from the Polish side um, and bringing some Polish food for people. So like biscuits 
Um, so there were there was looking after each other from coming from different uh, sides, different people. Then the other thing is that even if you have food at the Ukrainian site, you don't want to eat because, as I said, there's no there's no toilet facilities, so you just don't really dare to eat in case you'll uh, in case you you, you you will need the toilet after that. So, um, but yeah, we saw a lot of kindness, um, especially especially in Poland. Uh, and it also came from Ukrainians because a lot of those people who were offering free rides and free accommodation, they uh, uh, they were Ukrainians who have settled in uh, some time ago. Uh, but Ukrainians were looking after each other as well. Um, certainly there was a lot of advocacy for, for mothers uh, with children and uh, sort of asking for, for them to, for people to look after them. So what happened next? Tell me about how you got into the UK. You said there were some bureaucratic hurdles. Oh yeah, I mean there were yeah there were many many bureaucratic hurdles. So this was um, so we finally crossed into Poland on February twenty sixth. It was um, ten a.m. and uh, the first thing well we're planning to go to Warsaw first, and we even had so my friend I went to university in England, uh, University of Leeds. So uh, I had a Polish friend from there who messaged me, and lots of people were messaging me. To be honest, I had so many different like kind messages all over um, social media, like offering any help, like lots of Polish people saying, well, if you come to Poznań or if you come to here, uh, you know, uh, you're welcome in my house or I can help you with anything else. So that, that friend was one of the people who reached out and we initially were going to go to Warsaw to stay with him. And he even bought us train tickets, but the train tickets were like for 6.30. And there was so much like over... Um, overlooking and like uh, having hopeful having like wishful thinking like oh you know we can get that train at 6 30 a.m and then it's like already six o'clock and you know when near to crossing and then it's like seven eight and you're like right yeah that was definitely wishful thinking so uh when we crossed at, at 10 o'clock we decided to go to krakow first instead um and stay there for for two nights, and then we the, the, the second you know after that we went to Warsaw and stayed with a friend, and uh, whilst we were in Warsaw, and the main reason we went to Warsaw is because the British embassy is in Warsaw, and uh, so when we were in Warsaw we had it there, and they wouldn't even talk to me because I don't have a British passport, and there were other Ukrainians just turning up to the embassy and asking for help, and they were just all turned down and like said you know you have to go to the visa center or the the consular and I, uh, there were like a couple of other places that they were being redirected to but the thing with those places is that they had very limited open opening hours or they had no slots to be seen so everybody was so confused what to do and if you don't have a british passport you won't even get any help so uh but my partner does and he was like well you can't turn me down i have my british passport and so they talked talk to him and he was like well the other thing was is that I was supposed to have a tourist visa for the UK because I applied in early February. That's what they advised to uh, partners of British residents. They, they, held, they held this um, talk uh, on Zoom um, early February or like, you know, closer to mid-February. And uh, they said to them that your best bet is for your partners to apply for a tourist visa and we will uh, expedite them. We will, uh, you know, ensure that these are processed quickly. And that's that's what I did. I applied, um, although uh, before that call, because I actually 
sort of did this earlier, but the advice was actually the same what I did. So I applied for a tourist visa, I think around 6th of February or 8th of February. And normally they, they process those in one, two weeks, and then you get your visa and happy days, you know, you can come to the UK. But um, when the full-scale war started, I uh, still haven't had, heard back from uh, from the embassy, from the visa application center. The good thing was that I decided to hold on to my passport, which was probably one of the best decisions, because if I didn't have my passport in all those circumstances, I don't know how I would have done all of this. Um, so we just still didn't hear back, and we tried to get the help of my partner's um, MP and ask, uh, can you look into this, what's going on with my visa? Mm-hmm. Uh, why have I not heard back? And then we were, when we were at the British Embassy, the main thing we tried to find out is, where's my visa? What happened to it? Why have I not heard about it? And somehow we uh, actually then heard that I did get the visa, but they just don't know where they sent it to because normally the visa application center is in Kiev, but straight after the bombs started dropping, they closed that down and they stopped the issuance of tourist visas. And they had like a skeleton team in Lviv and they were like, well, we gave you a visa, but we don't know where we sent it. It might have been sent to Kiev, to the center that's closed down. It might have been sent to Lviv. It might be in Poland. We don't know, and we have no means of finding out. And we're like, okay, well, what am I supposed to do? Can you reissue it? No, we can't reissue visas. Okay, well, what am I supposed to do? Well, you have to reapply. I was like, but how can I reapply for a tourist visa when you close those down for Ukrainians because of the war? And they're like, we don't know. And um, so that was, you know, quite useless. And my partner was basically just trying to find out how how to deal with this. And at the same time, uh, by complete coincidence, um, Boris Johnson, the prime minister at the time, and Liz Truss, who was foreign secretary at the time, were visiting the British embassy uh, for a press conference. So that's why my partner was like told, can you come back in 40 minutes? And he was like why what's going on and then he found out what happened and it's because of the visit and he was like well I'm not coming back you know even better I'm staying here so that we can find out what happened to the visa and we uh, just basically started calling our partners started calling all the media organizations that we talked to before all the UK based ones and uh, asking them to help and to give a call to the home office and ask them uh, what happened to my visa and how I can get into the country because we you know my partner's got a home in the UK He's wanting to go to the UK, but he's not going to leave me. And that leaves us in an awkward position where we have no means of getting to the UK uh, for however long. And uh, staying in Poland would be expensive for us and it'd be difficult. And we just really just want to go home after everything we left through, after everything we lived through. So after all the media calls, uh, my partner gets a, um, gets sort of called in and said, you know, we, we're going to try and give you this thing that's called uh, a visa waiver. And uh, basically, a visa waiver is like this special. And again, this was all before all the schemes were announced. So this was early March. And uh, I think this was, yeah, 1st of March. And Homes for Ukraine was opened on, I think, 16th or 17th of March. And then the family visa, even though it existed at the time, it wasn't extended to, at at that time, it was only open to like spouses and uh, uh people who live together for two years but because i was based in kiev and my partner was based in manchester coming to kiev every month uh, we didn't really um we weren't eligible for that so uh, they they told us they try and sort out the visa waiver and um that is like if 
permission to board a specific flight and uh, then to be let into the country. And uh, so we, we got excited. We chose a flight to Manchester, from Krakow to Manchester, uh, showed it to them, sent it to them. And uh, after another hour or so, they call back and they say, yeah, Maria has been granted a visa waiver. And that was like a very, you know, this the visa waiver is a very, very rare thing. And it happens. Um, it's given out very, very rarely. And we think it's only, I was only given that because of the pressure that we were able to put on the, on the home office and I realized completely that, you know, it's another aspect where I can say that we were so lucky because most, you know, probably every other Ukrainian that was doing the journey didn't have this uh, support and didn't have this um, leverage that they could use. So, uh, yeah, I got the visa waiver. But even with that, I went to the airport and the Ryanair staff was like, where's your visa? And I'm like, well, I have a visa waiver. And they were like, okay, well, where is it? Can you show me uh, a piece of paper that says that you've got one? And I was like, no, there's no piece of paper. You know, it's something you have in your system. And they were like, have you got an email about this? And I was like, no, it's in your system. No, there's nothing in our system. And we were like, just as we were about to call the embassy and uh, and ask what's going on, uh, another, her, her colleague comes up to her and says, oh, yeah, there was somebody with a visa waiver. Try checking this other system. And they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, you are on it. And so we were allowed uh, to board. But then as I arrive in the UK, uh, again, a similar thing. You know, they asked me if I've got the visa. And I said, I've got the visa waiver. And it turns out that even though you've got the visa waiver, it doesn't mean automatic entry into the country. They have to email the home office and ask them, like, if they allow me to enter the country. And then after, only after they hear back, uh, they allow to do it. And that obviously can take time. And for me, it took two and a half hours for them to allow me to enter the country. And whilst uh, we were waiting for this two and a half hours, they officially detained me at the border and put me in this kind of on the bench and then they say sent counterterrorism police for me to check I wasn't a terrorist. Um, and, you know, was, with all of that, it's, uh, it was it was basically quite a difficult journey in and it wasn't helped by the fact that the UK didn't prepare for this sufficiently and uh, didn't act uh, fast enough. It took them only a couple of weeks uh, to act, and uh, which I'm very grateful that they did. And that meant that also after a couple of weeks, they extended the family scheme to engaged couples. So we were able to apply. And that's how I've legalized myself fully in the country. And I'm now on a family visa. But it definitely took a lot of stress and energy. And, and that's something you don't really want um after 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 that horrific story that we um went through by crossing the border i was gonna say i can imagine but honestly i i don't think i really can imagine so that's a really a heck of a heck of a story let's switch gears uh, a little bit because we're recording this it's now almost the year anniversary of the war so i want to look back ask about some bigger questions and i guess we'll start with maybe the biggest one personally are you the same person you were a year ago? Uh, no, well, I don't think any of Ukrainians are the same people. I mean, we lived with the war actually since 2014 and uh, that affected us to some extent, but not to most of us, you know, still weren't affected uh, as much as, as we were now since, since last year. And uh, I'm sure that all of us or the vast, vast majority of us wake up every morning and the first thing we do is check what's been bombed. And if all our relatives are okay and alive, if all our friends are okay and alive, 
And every morning since February 24th has been starting like this. Um, and well, secondly, I mean, other things have changed and uh, that's, you know, I had to, I think there was a, there was a thing where before 2022, I was trying to think that to speak to some Russians were, was okay. And, you know, I obviously uh, despised the government since 2014 and uh, for everything they've done uh, against Ukrainians for such a long time. But um, on, in general, I carried on to talking to my friends who are Russian but living outside of Russia. And that's definitely become more difficult uh, since February last year. And I've just decided not to talk to any of them because I just find that even the most liberal Russians, once you approach certain subjects such as Crimea, they will, for example, completely support Ukraine uh, in the last year because of, you know, they'll think that it was an unjust attack on Ukraine. But when you talk to them about Crimea, they're like, oh, but Crimea is a different issue. Crimea should have been returned to Russia because it was Russian during this time. And, and you know, that's not something I, that's not, these are not conversations that I can tolerate anymore. Um, and I just prefer to put my energy elsewhere uh, rather than argue with Russians about uh, different subjects. And there's definitely this one thing that most of them do is that they think that they have a say in what Ukraine should do and what what Ukraine should have done and what Ukraine should do and what's the best future for Ukraine. And it's just like, no, you know, if you use the principle that Ukraine has been um, under Russia for uh, during Soviet time and then under Russia during Russian Empire time, then you can use the same principle that, well, why don't Lithuanians tell Ukrainians what to do? You know, Ukraine was under Lithuania for a very long time as well. Uh, or why don't Polish people tell Ukraine what to do? It's just, it's a very, it's a completely different mindset that they have. And uh, it's been hard for me to deal with that in the last year. I just prefer to talk to uh, people who co- completely support Ukraine. And I'm very lucky to be in the UK because um, people here are very supportive. Now, another question, uh, you had mentioned you went to school in the UK. So did you face much of a cultural adjustment to being in the UK or was that relatively smooth for you? Uh, no, that was, uh, yeah, that was relatively smooth. So again, you know, I'm lucky. I would, I'm not, I'm not sure I would have ever done this journey. I'm not sure I would have left Ukraine if I didn't have a British partner. So um, that, you know, and I was, um also like in the other thing so I'm lucky that I have him here and I have somewhere to live and I don't have to worry about all those things but I'm also lucky that I lived in the UK before and I went to school and university here and uh, that means that I'm fluent in English and that I've already lived here I already know most of the aspects of British uh, life and you know I didn't there wasn't a lot of adjustment to do for a lot of Ukrainians it was uh, a lot of things that they had to set up but I was already aware of uh, of all of this and I didn't have to do so much um, settling in and, and as they did. And that's why I realize in this luck and privilege that I have, I've been doing the, the free walking tours of Manchester in Ukrainian because that was my way to, to give back and help others. And that's why I've been translating and interpreting. I got a formal uh, qualification as an interpreter just to be able to uh, help other Ukrainians settle in because for them, it's a completely different story. They come to a country where they've never been, most of them. They don't speak the language of, they don't have anybody to rely on, especially at first. Um, 
So I, yeah, I'm in a much more fortunate position and I try not to take it for granted, but actually use that to help others. And I'm very grateful that I also have a lot of um, platforms where I can advocate Ukrainians' needs and and talk about Ukraine and, um, and, um, you know, give back to the community. So let's talk about that community on a, on a broader level here. So uh, what are the kind of key issues that Ukrainian refugees in the UK are, are facing now? And has that set of issues evolved over the last year? Uh, yes, definitely. I think uh, because it, most of the Ukrainians who have uh, arrived into the UK, they arrived in the first couple of months of the scheme. So meaning in March, April, a lot of them came over summer. But then after that, we've seen a significant fall in people. And that's mostly to do with the fact that the UK has sort of almost run out of hosts uh, who could host. And a lot of people who wanted to host, they changed their mind because uh, of the cost of living, living crisis or because of hearing some stories of relationships that broke down. And there's definitely been a lot fewer Ukrainians coming recently. So in the first months when they were arriving, it was basically just everyday items like food, water, clothing, washing facilities, baby items. And they were donated in abundance and, um, and uh, they, uh, you know, there were lots of things set up like free shops for Ukrainians where they could just come and grab some items completely for free. Um, And it's worth saying that I don't like the term refugees because it's not completely um, reflects what Ukrainians are. Um, refugees are normally people who come to relocate completely and you know they leave their homes and they're not able to go back but most of Ukrainians if you talk to them you find out that 95% of them want to go back to Ukraine after they're able to and a lot of them actually just come for a couple of months or just come for the winter because winters are very hard to uh, survive in Ukraine now with all the power cuts and they're planning to go back but a lot of them are planning to go back once it's safe to go back so and even by legal definitions Ukrainians who come to the UK they are not refugees because they come on visas the visa is for three years and you know they they're here on visas um what term, now what term do you use uh well I, I say war refugees because it um because it you know, that's the best way to for people to understand what you're talking about. And, you know, war refugees, they escape in the war. But, um, I mean, evacuees, you can say evacuees, but um, you, can, you can say war refugees, it's just not correct. But as, as long as you as long as you realize that, that, you know, that the issue is actually much more complicated and uh, they not by legal means uh, they not refugees uh, right now the, the needs of the of Ukrainians who have arrived in the UK they are mostly to do with housing and um, finding jobs a lot of the people uh, well most of uh, a lot of Ukrainians would have come on the homes for Ukraine scheme meaning they stayed um, in uh, with, with sponsors with like families or people British people or people who have the right to live in the UK opened up their homes to them but most of this uh, in my experience in my experience of talking to people um, would have come to an end within like six months because initially the house kind of committed to six months even though it wasn't legally binding but most people said well you know we'll let you stay for six months and after that you have to um, stand on your two feet and find your own um, means of living in this country and uh, in my experience of talking to people most Ukrainians uh, 
did have to move out after about six months, sometimes seven, eight months, but uh, normally wouldn't go to um, a whole year. So these Ukrainians uh, would then, especially if their relationship breaks down, suddenly they would then have to find house and to stay in the UK. And uh, most of them would not be able to afford housing or get housing because uh, there's a housing crisis in the UK and even for British people to get housing, it, it's difficult, uh, but especially it's difficult when you don't get have a guarantor, so somebody who can... Uh, guarantee that you'll be paying rent and if you don't have a history of renting in the UK and the, the Ukrainians who are here obviously they don't have that and social housing even though it does exist in the UK on paper but uh, there's no social housing available for anyone and the keys to get that like can sometimes take decades uh, so there's in specific regions there's people helping with this and talking to private landlords uh, trying to convince them that they rent out their property to ukrainians through the benefit system so basically when the government uh instead of instead of the ukrainian paying the landlord uh, the government will cover that cost as part of their benefit system because they receive benefits there there are a lot of job related issues because uh a lot of these Ukrainians who come from Ukraine, they've been doctors, lawyers uh, in Ukraine, and they come here and their qualification is not recognized here and their language skills are not enough to work in those professions. So they are they have to work as cleaners, they uh, have to work at warehouses, factories, and um, whilst they do that, you know, they don't really, because these are difficult jobs, normally you have to work like 12-hour shifts, um, and you don't have the, the energy to actually talk anywhere else or to improve your English to, be, to find another job. Um, so there's a lot of job-related issues um, for almost everybody, unless they were IT specialists in Ukraine. We found that everybody who's come from an IT sector in Ukraine are able to find jobs here within pretty much hours. You know, they sent out their CV and straight away they're invited for an interview and grabbed uh you know the first like the the companies are so happy to have this uh, ukrainian specialist who because ukraine has got a very high level of um, it industry there's a lot of cultural difficulties because as with any or as with most countries you'll find um that people have um different things and used to different things for example in ukraine children normally don't really have sleep time like uh, set hours when they're supposed to be in bed or a lot of them just stay awake whilst the parents stay awake and they only will go to bed like closer to when the parents go to bed here in the uk children go to bed at like 7 p.m or 8 p.m and when the family comes to stay with an english family and both have children it does it just doesn't work because uh the other children's like ask why are they allowed to stay up and we have to go to bed um, so uh, that's, I think, been difficult uh, for some relationships. Um, and then the other thing is, as I said, most Ukrainians want to go back to Ukraine and that uh, makes living in the UK difficult. So they find it hard to set up lives here because they live with one foot out of the door. So they they can't, you know, they can't fully commit to living in the UK. And that's something that I think is also difficult with the relationship with the families that they live in because um, the families, the, the hosts expect them to be very active in setting up their life, you know, attending classes that will allow them to find a job, getting a job quickly, moving in somewhere else. Uh, 
for a lot of Ukrainians because they keep thinking that they'll be going back soon and nobody knows when uh, all of them are able to go back. Uh, but living with that sort of mindset that, well, I'll be able to go back soon. There's, you know, I, uh, there's no rush for me to do all of these things. But then this, this timeline keeps being brought forward and forward and sort of, sort of like delay, you know, you keep, you, you keep thinking that you'll be able to go back in a couple of months. But then after that, you're like, okay, well, it's another couple of months. And then it just means that they, uh, that they are not able to, uh, set up their lives, um, yeah, I think that probably are the main ones that are the main difficulties and needs that um, I've noticed Ukrainians to have. So turning to uh, the big picture about the war as a whole, I, I have to notice when you were talking about this earlier, you didn't say when the war ends, you said when Ukraine wins. So a year in, would you say you're optimistic about the outcome? Uh, yeah, I'm definitely optimistic. And no, you know, I know that Ukrainians won't uh, give up and whatever that takes and they might uh, the Russians might do a lot more damage in the coming months and uh, plan to do a lot more damage but that doesn't mean that the resolve of Ukrainians will will go I think that everybody uh, Ukraine will keep fighting until um, you know until victory and I'm certain that um, that won't change um, it's just a matter of how much damage Russia will be able to do in this meantime. But the main, I think, thing is for Ukraine's victory is for the West to keep supporting Ukraine. And had, because we all know that had the West, uh, I'm very, very grateful for, for how the West has been supporting Ukraine and for everything that uh, they've done to uh, help Ukraine fight Russia. But um, had the West given all their weapons and all the ammunition that Ukraine asked for in the first uh, days, then we wouldn't be here one year later or nearly one year later. Um, so Ukraine's victory is uh, Ukraine's definitely going to win, but uh, it's the matter of when, and I think that can be um, accelerated if um, if the West amps up its support. And for our penultimate question, uh, a year into this war, what does it mean to you to be Ukrainian? Um, well, I think being Ukrainian is uh, a lot to do, you know, we have our identity, we have our culture, and we have a lot of history that actually precedes, uh, precedes Russian history. And, um, I think being Ukrainian is about, um, defending our history and our identity and culture. And for many, many centuries, Russia tried to, uh, to um, stop us doing that and to destroy all of this by changing the history. And it's still happening now, you know, that Putin speech that I referred to on uh, 21st of February, he pretended that, that Ukraine was only created in 1922 by many. Uh, and it's like this, and that that happened before when Catherine the Great tried to, uh, Catherine the Second tried to, um, change and rewrite the Ukrainian history, making Ukrainians as something as just like this Russians who have suddenly decided to devolve from being Russian. But if you look at the history, you'll see that Ukrainians date back to uh, the 5th century and Kiev dates back to the 5th century. And then the Kievan Rus was built for centuries and was this like very flourishing sort of center around which the the culture and the trade was was being built, and then Moscow was actually built by a Kievan prince. And um, so, 
all of this and this and this culture has been nurtured for, for centuries and uh, we had a lot of uh, fighting with other countries and other states that tried to take over Ukraine and that wasn't just Moscow that was you know the Ottoman Republic that was uh, Poles Lithuanians and we've been trying to protect and defend our independence and our culture and our identity and sadly in uh, 2023 we're still doing this uh, but um, I think being Ukrainian is about freedom and independence and uh, telling everybody that we actually just we we're freedom loving people and uh we want to just leave in, live in peace and uh, had that not been for Moscow's uh, invasion, we would be doing that. And this war is uh, it's not something that where you can look at two sides and say, well, what's Ukrainian side and what's Russian side doing? It's an absolute like genocidal war and terrorism from one country. And, um, you know, it's a it's a one sided war. It's It's a clear invasion that Russia has been preparing for decades and they've been preparing to take over Crimea for way before 2014. And uh, they've been building, turning Crimea into a military base since their military and full takeover of Crimea that they um, achieved illegally in 2014. And they turned Crimea into a military base. And had they not done that, they wouldn't be able to do the full-scale invasion last year. Um, So there's a lot of things that they've been trying to destroy our identity and um, our culture and our independence, but uh, we will continue fighting that everybody in their films wherever they can. Um, and we certainly with our work, we continue talking about what's happening and um, writing about this. And um, hopefully we will we'll be able to return to Ukraine. Uh, all of us, you know, all of the Ukrainians, I'm sure they'll be able to uh, they all will want to go to back to Ukraine when Ukraine wins, and hopefully that will be sooner than later. Hope so too. Uh, last question: um, the proceeds for this episode will be donated to charity, and you had a very specific project in mind for a museum documenting the war. Can you spend a minute just talking a little bit about that? You could do a better job than I can. Yeah. So I wanted uh, the proceeds from this episode to go to. Um, a specific museum and uh, a catalogue that um, for this, it's a new museum and it's in Yahidne in the Chernihiv region, which is in north of Ukraine. And that was uh, occupied by Russians uh, in the early days of um, of the Russian full, full-scale invasion. And it spent one month under occupation and they held, and there is a school in Yahidne where the Russians held 299 adults and 67 kids captive in this tiny room in a school. And there were lots of horror stories from people who were then released and they talked about what was uh, going on there. And basically the school was used by the Russians as a cannon fodder to ensure that the headquarters that were nearby weren't targeted by Ukraine because they were like, well, if there's Ukrainians in this school, then Ukraine surely won't target this uh, the headquarters because the school is just by, by it. And this is done, uh, the museum is being set up by uh, somebody called Boris Dedov, and he is a famous Ukrainian artist um, who is currently, like, he has his museum in Chernihiv, and uh, they've done several exhibitions, uh, so even since, since February last year, and a lot of those exhibitions were um, dedicated to Russia's crimes in Ukraine, and he's, uh, he's a fantastic guy. His son is fighting in uh, the armed forces of Ukraine, and he's been helping as, as you know he stayed in Ukraine all this time and he's been helping by uh, 
he even opened up his museum to host uh, territorial defense forces in, in the premises and he was helping Ukraine in everything he can. And right now he wants to build a museum in this village, Yahidne, where he will showcase what happened in the village because a lot of these stories uh, have not been told and they were certainly not told by human rights organizations like Amnesty International. And it was only thanks to a lot of Ukrainian journalists who investigated what happened that these uh, crimes have been um, exposed. And uh, I think by having that museum, um, especially after Ukraine's victory, um, people, you know, it can become a tourist destination where people can come and, and tourists can come and find out what happened. And he is wanting to publish um catalogs for this museum and for that he is raising uh, six uh, six and a half thousand euros and the catalogs will be in Ukrainian English and um, it's a little bit hard right now to uh, raise funds for something that you kind of can um, you know can uh, can put in the it's, it's kind of like culture because it's a museum but then it's also important uh, to keep talking about what Russia's doing and setting up the museum and producing this uh, catalogs in English language is something that uh, will help this. So that's why I'm supporting him and I'm supporting the project. We'll include a donation link in the description of this episode. Maria, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Maria and to you, listener, for joining. As I said before, we'll have more coverage of the anniversary of the Ukraine war coming up. Don't forget to follow BMB Russia and Eurasia at the Twitter handle at Bear Market Brief. BMB Russia and Eurasia is a project of the Foreign Policy Research Institute, that's FPRI, a nonpartisan think tank based in Philadelphia. For more information on this initiative and many others, be sure to stop by fpri.org. We'll catch you next time.